you've landed on a substance. I'm your host, Philip Marinello, uh, joined by nobody here. This is a uh, first solo episode in the uh, 3.0 era here. I'm excited to share a conversation with you here on the show today. We've got Olivia Mead, returning guest with uh, her pastor, Will Basham, and co-editor and author, Jason Cook. Uh, Olivia was here previously with her book, Ordinary Faithfulness. We had a great time talking with her. Uh, That was part of the Rural Church Voices um, line of books. And this is their first. You should call it an anthology. So Will, Olivia, and Jason are the editors. They each wrote one chapter. There's 12 chapters, different folks from different rural churches, different states, different areas. We even got one here in Missouri, uh, real close to St. Louis there. But yeah, we've got... Uh, a really good conversation. Um, talked a little bit about the book. Talked about their their passion for the rural church, which is not something that you hear come up a lot. I was very excited to hear people just with a different lived experience than I have, but people who are working faithfully um, and trying to encourage others there too. So excited to share this with you, and I uh, hope you enjoy. Today we've got. Jason Cook, Olivia Mead, and Will Basham. That's right. Beautiful. Welcome to the Substance, guys, of uh, of Rural Church Voices. Thanks for having us. Welcome back, Olivia. (laughs) Yes. yes, Olivia is a great marketer once again. Uh, I don't know how you guys get on other people's radar, but when I got the package and I saw it, it had Rural Church Voices, I was like, it's kind of small. I wonder. And then I opened it up and it had a cigar in it. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm emailing Olivia today. <laughs> it's, it's a nice little hook there. <laughs> yeah. Props to Will. He picked that cigar out this time. So very nice. No, I was going to smoke it uh, this past weekend, but just busy prepping family in town. So I'm going to be enjoying that very soon here. So do you Good. guys all do cigars together semi-regularly? We try so to. I'm probably the, the chief uh, cigar smoker of the group. <laughs> Nice. I bet I smoke a lot more than uh, Jason and Olivia do. I agree with but that. But they do yeah. they do with us occasionally. There you go. Yeah, we just we just did the other day together for go. the first time in a year. So maybe next year we'll smoke again together. About I every try- time we release a <laughs> book, a we smoke there a cigar together. Yeah. I try not to push it too much. So we try to be friends outside the book too. It's hit remiss, but you know we uh, we're pretty good friends. There you go. Um, so let's do some brief intros here. Uh, audiences may know Olivia uh, for a previous uh, appearance here on The Substance, but Jason, why don't you tell the folks just a little bit about yourself, how you came to the church, how you connect with these folks. Uh, have you guys known, have you known all each other like for a real long time or is it some more recent trio of relationships here? Uh, yeah, so thanks for having me, Philip. We've known each other for a few years. I've known Will a little bit longer than Olivia. We've all kind of traveled in the same circles and been in the same area, but not necessarily had our paths cross. So I've been at New Heights about five years, and uh, my background uh, before New Heights, which is kind of what, you know, put me in a position to be involved with the Rural Church Voices Project, was I grew up, uh, was raised up and was involved in rural ministry uh, with a United Baptist denomination that's uh, here in Southern West Virginia, and uh, spent uh, a long time in rural ministry 
in old time religion, you know, which was obviously the inspiration for, uh, you know, my book. And so through a part of that, I was in Lincoln County, uh, moved there to be a part of a church and be a part of a ministry, which is where Will and Olivia are from. So that's kind of how the connection started. Um, I left that denomination and came to New Heights about five years ago, uh, where I've been a member. Uh, so we've all gotten to know each other since. Nice. So, Will, you're a pastor there. How long have you been a part of that that uh, assembly? Yeah. Um, so I planted New Heights Church, uh, the church that okay. I lead, in 2012. So a little over 10 years now wow. uh, pastoring that church and uh, serve with the plurality of pastors there. And God's blessed our congregation. Um, it's been fun and uh, hoping to do it for a, a lot longer into the future. But um, yeah, Jason and Olivia are both members of our church, and so it's uh, it's a joy that we can uh, actually just write and and do ministry that kind of goes out broadly beyond our church, but also just be friends and family in the same local church as well. So you said church plant was there. Was that just something you had on your heart? Did you kind of come? Were you sent by another group of churches or a body, or was there just kind of a need you saw? How did that kind of start? I grew up in uh, a rural uh, county in West Virginia that Jason was mentioning, and I thought church plant was just the the fake plants at the front of the sanctuary. I didn't know. I'd never heard of church planting. I never heard of really anyone starting a new congregation in the past 100 years. Um, and I, I ended up going to seminary. And when I was in seminary, um, I heard about church planting. I had a couple of people suggest church planting to me because I was a youth minister and um, God was working and we were seeing conversions and stuff. And so I ended up taking a church planting class in seminary and um, just just fell in love with the concept. thought it was biblical, thought it was helpful. And um, and then just pragmatically, I thought it made a lot of sense for me um, and because I couldn't see myself rolling in and doing the whole suit and tie, you know, established church pastor thing. And uh, so I was like, well, let's look around and pray about where God might uh, lead us to plant a church. I didn't want to plant in my hometown um, because I knew too many people in too many churches and didn't want to split all those up and cause drama. And uh, so I ended up uh, moving to the town I live in now, Milton, West Virginia, which is a town of a little less than 3000 people, um, which felt like the big city to me from where I was coming from. And so I moved to a bigger town and planted a church, uh, which, which I found out is actually in a small town. And, um, and I, I moved there and planted there because it was very similar to the culture I grew up in and knew and was familiar with. So 3,000 is big. What was, where'd you grow up? What was that town like? Under 1,000. Yeah, so there were 30 people rural. in my graduating class. Yeah. How yeah. many? 30 in my graduating class wow. from high school. So, yeah. It was, well, I went to a private Christian school. I, I was in a much bigger area, but. That's yeah. about my size at a yeah. little private. Yeah. Wow, we under a thousand people. So that's like super pros and cons. But like you, you really everybody truly knows everybody. Oh yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, to show the connections even more, uh, one of my best friends through high school that I graduated with is Olivia's husband, and so okay. it's, a, it's a small world. So that's uh, kind of brings it full circle how we're all connected. So you and Matt have known each other like your whole lives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we met in elementary school. So did you guys reconnect? Like, so when did you and Olivia meet? I think we met when I was still in high school and you were a youth pastor yeah. in town, which you were only like a few years older 
than all of yeah. us who were like thank you for clarifying <laughs> you're making me sound super ancient for a little bit i was um, in high school and you were the old youth pastor for some reason yeah, yeah but no husband. i think that's i think that's the first time we met and then when matt and i started dating he was already part of the church which was not technically a church yet it was just like five people meeting in a giovanni's pizza restaurant so you met your husband high school college yeah. Yeah. I was in college. Um, and he had already graduated college. So, yeah. So Jason, do you have any familial relationship to any, any of these other two here? <laughs> Not that we know of. It's always possible though. You, you never know. I, who I've read a few with. articles. I, I have heard, I read a few articles about that recently, like in some of those small towns where you find, like, I feel like that's gotta be a bit of a risk, I guess, with uh, the limited pool of people there. It can be, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Olivia's husband, Matt, was actually the first baptism uh, in our church. So, oh, wow. yeah, so he came to faith and uh, we baptized him. And like like Liv said, we were we were just a handful of people um, doing a Bible study at a pizza restaurant. And then you went to seminary, kind of had the vision and started or was that? So I'd been to seminary before we were doing that pizza, pizza okay. restaurant thing. Yeah. So that um, was like stage one. Yeah. Right. Pizza yeah. restaurant. So Just like yeah, they we teach did, you, right? Yeah. We did the pizza restaurant, right? Like I was, I was, uh, as soon as I graduated, we started, started doing uh, church planting ministry. So, uh, I think Olivia told us a little bit about it previously, but what was, what were the seeds of rural church voices? I know that you guys both wrote your own books and then this is, a joint book with you and several other people. Um, but starting with the three, I know she had ordinary faithfulness and you two had yours. How did, what were the beginnings of that? Yeah. So I would say the beginnings of it were uh, during COVID. I had a lot of free time on my hands. So I've been working uh, just with, you know, processing and thinking through uh, kind of the ministry transitions that I've been through and kind of beginning to under to have an awareness of the church culture that I was raised up in and sitting at home. I was, well, I decided to email Will and I just kind of pitched it to him. I said, Hey, Will, I've uh, been thinking about writing a book and here's what I've got. And, uh, but when he did get back to me, he uh, was pretty much like, Hey, I've been working on the same thing. And uh, so we, we actually discussed a few different options, maybe writing a book together and uh, the project kind of evolved into we decided to uh, release our books, uh, Rural Mission for Will, Old Time Religion for Me, uh, together. And we worked on that throughout 2020 and released them in early uh, 2021. And so from that, uh, as we were looking at the scope of the project, we you know thought that there could be something more than just the two of us uh, releasing books. And uh, we initially... You know, so Will and Olivia have known each other uh, quite a while, you know, as you just heard. But I think I first met Olivia about two years ago when she came on, came into the project to kind of consult with us on biz, on the business aspect, the marketing aspect, and just to kind of give content advice with all of her experience and knowledge. And uh, as the three of us began to talk, uh, we kind of realized that we had something bigger. So the full Rural Church Voices project was born, and then, you know, Olivia obviously wrote and released Ordinary Faithfulness, and then we moved on to Church Out Here. So it went uh, Jason's book, Will's book, Olivia's book? Yes. 
uh, Will and I released our books together at the okay, same date. So that was a joint launch. And I did see a lot of people posting those uh, the, your Jason's book and Will's book together. So joint launch, that makes sense. So you were a part of the team at that time, Olivia? Yes, at that time. So in the initial phase of their um, content planning and writing, um, I was not involved. So they called me and was like, hey, we have these books that we've written. So I think that you guys had had totally finished at least the writing portion. Um, and now we need some help and advice on how to get it out there. And so I have a background in marketing and then I also work in content and writing now professionally. Um, so I feel like I was able to add a little bit, at least they gave me a free lunch out of the, I got free lunch out of the initial meeting. So I was there like, you yeah, go. Sure. Sure, I'll come. Give me a Subway sub. Um, but from that, you know, of course, knowing Will um, and then getting to know Jason, I loved the concept of their books. I got to read them early and really loved what they were saying and thought that their perspectives were really great from a pastoral perspective, but also just like a small town um, practitioner, you know, someone sharing the gospel. And so um, I continued to be involved in helping them launch their books. And then after their books launched, they both approached me and asked, hey, do you think you have a book in you as well? Um, so it was never really the initial plan, but after the in, um, involvement and, and kind of help with them, it was clear that, hey, I think that there's there's more to be said in this series. And I think my voice was the right one to come next. Well, being, I mean, I've read several of the things here, but being the only full one I read, I, I imagine that was, that was great. So do you have a history? You said you write content. Have you written a book length project previously or was that your first one? No, that was the first one. So really before writing Ordinary Faithfulness, um, writing for me was more of a hobby. It's something that I did for our church um, or for like our women's Bible study or different projects like that. It was never a career for me um, and certainly, you know, never um, a full length project like that. And so um, to take that on, especially with two young kids at home um, yeah. coming out of COVID, I was transitioning jobs. It, there was a lot happening for me at the time of writing this book, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of grateful that it happened in that way as well. For one, because Jason and Will were supporting me and kind of helping me and guiding me. And um, we joked and said that they like they were my publishers. And so we're, <laughs> um, you know, they're keeping me on deadline. And um, so that was helpful. Um, but yeah, so coming out of this book, I actually um, started writing a lot more um, for just content creation. So I work for Acts 29 as um, a writer and I do a lot of content um, for for them and then in other spaces as well, including our church. And so um, this project really helped kind of launch me, not from a, I don't mean launch like in a platform perspective, um, but it helped me really gain more confidence in writing um, and see that, you know, a long form project like this is is doable. So I'm really grateful for that. And then, you know, coming into writing for church out here and helping other authors who, you know, we have 12 authors, including the three of us um, for this book. And so we were able to help coach these other authors um, who have either maybe never written before or at least not in this capacity. Um, or even if they were seasoned writers, we were able to kind of give a little bit of context and just help for what this project needed. Um, so that was kind of a, a fun experience as well for this 
from our perspective, I guess Jason and Will would probably say the same because, you know, with this book, we didn't write the entire book ourselves, but we were able to be involved in every piece, you know, of every chapter. So that was, that's gotta be nice, right? You you get to produce a full book and only have to write like a 12th of the, the content. Well, here's what I learned. It's a lot easier to write a book than edit a whole one. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it's true. Oh god, because <laughs> yeah, you're coordinating you're, with like nine yeah, other just, people or eleven yeah, other people. The coordination of it all, um, and we wanted the whole book to be uh, cohesive and and really fit stylistically together and flow really well for the reader. That it wasn't so kind of chompy from one chapter to the next. And so, um, yeah, so through like revisions and even just stylistic things and grammar and Olivia brought in these books that were huge that told us like the rules of editing that I didn't know existed, you know, and she, she read like a whole book on semicolons and God bless her. It's a really good book. It's a good book. Hey, I got the shout out segment at the end here before (laughs) I I do want to talk about, some of the editing process and hear your guys' experience of that. But I did want to ask before we get there. So it says independently published by Rural Church Voices on the Dust Jacket. What does that look like practically? Like obviously you're probably not printing out like tens of thousands of copies necessarily right out of the gate, but like independently published, this is like a nice book. You have a logo. Like how does the publishing aspect of it work? I mean, it's one thing to put out like, pamphlets locally or host writing online, but starting up rural church voices, publishing, whatever that looks like. Tell me about that. Yeah. So we uh, publish using the uh, Amazon KDP platform. Uh, so there's a uh, backend technical work on that as far as preparing. Uh, I may speak to the technical part and then I will uh, very much uh, defer to my colleagues for the editing and the content part because that's where they help me along. So on but the back physically part, creating a book is plenty of work. It it is. Like yeah. Once you uh, write it, getting it into like a package is a whole nother thing. Yeah. The the platform is uh yeah it takes there's a lot of upfront learning but uh, so basically you have to work your manuscript into a a format and then set up the details of the book. And we work with uh, an awesome uh, graphic designer, uh, Aubrey Meadows. I'll give her a shout out on the podcast. She's done the cover and kind of the theme for all of our all of our books. And uh, so after you do kind of formatting the manuscript and the content design, you work within the, uh, the publishing system to kind of figure out some of the details of the book. And uh, it's a lot of upfront work, but kind of once you get it set up, then you kind of focus more on the content and the editing piece, which is where I was so generously helped along by my fellow editors. So Jason, are you kind of, so when you're doing that, do you do like, is it print on demand or did you do an initial run and there's a warehouse of books somewhere? How does that work? Yeah. So the warehouse is not, not as big as some people might imagine it to be. Um, it's a, it's a nice little office at the church, but uh, maybe we'll get a warehouse space one day. I don't know. Uh, so what we did was there, we learned a lot of lessons as Will and I were uh, publishing our books as far as promotion. Yeah. Ordering. This is the fourth one, right? So you guys kind of have a yes. little bit of an idea of what a rollout looks like yes but to answer your uh, question directly we we did a pre-ordering process and we ordered initial run of books and then as the book matures and the project kind of moves forward we do more of a print on demand and uh, as the books are sold on amazon or continue to be sold through 
light. Nice. So is that just you guys, the three of you, or spouses and friends, just like when you're getting low, you kind of have to decide, okay, what's the next print run going to be kind of deal? Yeah, the uh, the it's very um, familial. My daughter is our main shipping department. So my oldest, my oldest daughter packages and ships the books for us. Um, she's 14. So we employ child labor and um, <laughs> we, we buy our Starbucks gift cards sometimes to there thank her go. for that. But yeah, it is very, um, it's, it's very much us just slinging books out of, you know, the back of our trucks and uh, shipping them from our local post office. Nice. 12 authors. I didn't get to read the whole thing. Looked like some people were from Georgia. One I saw was from Missouri. Like, is Rural Church Voices a network? Do you guys just have relationships? Like, how did you guys choose, like, what talent was tapped? Who wrote what? Like, how did that process kind of go? I would just jump in and say, like, we we knew everyone. There was a connection yeah. somewhere. So it wasn't us, like, finding talent and recruiting it. It was because it it's hard to find, right, when you're dealing with yeah. rural authors. But um, It is on any project, any, but I'm sure yeah, even more yeah. so if you're trying but, to. But Just I think, I think what was, <laughs> I think what was most helpful was we we figured out what we wanted to write about first. So we said, okay, okay what what do rural churches need to hear about, and what would be helpful that maybe necessarily hasn't been written about yet. Um, Olivia, I know you were going to jump in and speak to that process a little bit. Yeah, I was I was just going to say, you know, our initial first step was to decide. The, you know, what the content was. And so we, um, we didn't just contact people and say, Hey, what do you want to write about? It was important to us to make sure this project was cohesive, but that it told, um, an entire story. So we have 12 people, 12 different writing styles, you know, we've edited it and, and guided it to be a cohesive book that hopefully, you know, when you read it together, um, it makes sense as you go from chapter to chapter, but it was important to us to ensure that it flowed in a way um, that made sense for anyone who was picking up the book. So whether you're a pastor, whether you lead in ministry, whether you're just, you know, a regular churchgoer, um, which all of us are, you know, in, in a lot of ways too. Um, I think it was important for us to decide what do we want to say? And then we can, um, you know, bring people in to speak to those particular things. So uh, the work of editing and shaping it is really helpful. I thought I was like, well, right away, I, I do need to read the first chapter. I really appreciated Christians uh, and Christian Crouch. I don't know if I could find them online. Uh, Man, isn't he a great writer, though? He, he's, okay. he's a phenomenal he's, writer. He, he is. <laughs> I, did, I don't know. Is he a West Virginian or is he one of the guys from somewhere else? So the he, yeah he's from Georgia. Um, okay, I knew there was a Georgian. It's like I definitely read chapter one. So yeah, he, he like passes the church Georgia or Missouri. Yeah, he passes the church in Georgia. Um, yeah, the connection of how we kind of found him was uh, members of our church uh, used to be members at his church, and when uh, we released uh, the first books, uh, those members were like, "Hey, you need to you need to send him a copy. Let him check this out." Um, he engaged with the work and express interest. He wrote a couple articles for our website. Um, and we just saw his, his writing was captivating and good. And his experience was, was a good asset to what we're the story we were trying to tell. And, um, and so, yeah, there was a lot of that, even with the other authors, either, either some history or a lot of engagement as the project of our three books got rolling. Um, it, we're, we're not a network we're, there's no formal affiliation with the, with the 12 authors other than that we all had the same heartbeat to, 
to write this book uh, for uh, small town church leaders. Um, and so we've just, uh, we're actually a, a representation of uh, several different denominations and networks, uh, just with the same goal of uh, giving some advice to, to people in a similar context. I like that a lot. That's got to be exciting. Yeah. Challenging, I'm sure, to wrangle that all as an editor, but that's got to be very exciting. Yeah, yeah. It was cool to hear everyone's kind of backstories. And we did some Zoom calls and uh, tried to get everybody on the same page um, just with writing style and what the goal of the project was, what each topic was going to be that we asked people to write on and then jumped into it. We've mentioned this several times on the show before with several different authors with different size platforms, but uh, everybody has been very unanimous. You don't write books uh, to to get rich or, or to sell sell a million copies. And like most people, that's not why they write books. And if the goal is to truly edify like capital C, like the church, like largely having different people from different areas, different denominations, different giftedness, that's got to be kind of like an exciting project to do, especially after like three individual very clear ones you guys are all kind of from the same pool expanding that what was uh what were some of the uh the benefits that that surprised you guys when you're doing that i think one big benefit is just encouragement of like seeing the practicality of getting a resource in someone's hands and and them actually benefiting from it uh it's it encourages our souls um i think it helps and equips local churches uh which is what we're about Uh, we we want small local churches to be equipped uh, to, to do things that God's called them to do. And um, so that's, that's a huge benefit. It's super encouraging for us to see that happening too. Yeah. I think something that I loved about just the collaboration of everyone is having um, different perspectives in terms of ministry. Um, you know, some are pastors, some are not, some have been serving in ministry um, whether globally or locally here um, in West Virginia or, you know, in other small places for decades. Some have been in ministry for five to eight years. You know, we have all these different perspectives and ways to kind of bring their expertise um, in, their wisdom in, some lessons learned in, and then also just really be a beacon of encouragement for folks who are maybe experiencing things that we've experienced or will experience things that we've experienced in small towns and rural places, um, because it can often feel isolating, um, especially serving in, in ministry and um, churches, you know, when you see the broad, a broad scale of like things that are happening, resources that are being put out there, you know, we've talked about this um, before. And I think when I was on the show before, we even talked about this, uh, Philip, about how um, it's often difficult to, you know, the, the resources that are available are hard to translate sometimes for um, smaller towns or smaller churches. Sure. And so um, it was important for us and it's continued to be important for us in all that we've done with Rural Church Voices is to make everything very accessible, um, very affordable, um, short and compact to read, you know, so Church Out Here, I think, is our longest book because we had, you know, such great content from um, from everyone. Um, but we but like again, to- I'll say bless you guys. We always like to shout it out on the show <laughs> under 200 pages. You have 12 chapters and it's under 200 pages like that. Yeah. If, if things were more normal, I would have read this whole thing like that's a great length. Yeah, but that's important to us, too, because we know, you know, 
how hard it is to sit down and read a book for anyone, you know, like everyone's busy, whether you have kids or not job or not, whatever it is. Um, so we want to offer resources that are accessible and, and easy for people to engage with. So as far as the editing structure, I'm curious, cause it started with, it went Jason, Olivia, Will, you guys are the, the second quarter of the book and your three chapters are right next to each other. Was that, was that, part of the plan or did it just kind of go that way with the uh, topics you guys divvy out amongst yourselves? How did that? So I don't think we planned it that way for us to be together. I think it was more kind of naturally arose out of the topics that we chose, but there was a real sense of uh, certain chapters were more focused on, on the, the church and then other chapters were more outward focused uh, in the sense of mission and the church going out. Uh, but as far as, of us being together i think it was just providence okay no i was just wondering about that because it's like one two and three where other people and then you guys are four five and six and then that's halfway through the book i was like oh that's interesting i wonder if that was uh, part of the plan like will's chapter finishes and it's halfway through and i was like that's like when you read the bible and you end up like getting sucked into numerology and but, but there's, <laughs> there's not actually anything there right? my god i have had a number of conversations with people lately about just seeing numbers and i'm like guys like and if you are looking for it you'll find it and you can make yourself crazy or trick yourself into believing all sorts of stuff but yeah, that's that's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, the whole outline was was purely topical, though. And then, um, yeah, we just looked at what authors were best equipped to speak on the topics we wanted to deal with. OK, well, I don't want to necessarily go fully through each one, but uh, I can hit him quickly here. And when I say quick, don't feel like you need to rush. Jason, I thought your topic was really interesting, talking about caring for dying churches. And that's not. So, I mean, that's something I think about occasionally, but I have to imagine if your if one's primary environment is rural church ministry, that's got to be a, a real reality to think about that. People in the communities, like you said, if you got a thousand people in a given community, like I'm sure there aren't as many churches as there are like in a big city. So how does, tell me about that ministry of your your personal experience and kind of how you approach that. Yeah, so I've spent a lot of time uh, in ministry, but also just in my Christian life around churches that are declining and dying. And um, the reason why the topic I felt was very important for me is, uh, you know, there it's very important that we think through and there be a robust ministry and focus on church planning. Uh, that's obviously focused on the book. You know, Jim Drake was our expert on that, and he had the chapter directly before mine on church revitalization. But I've also, I also deeply believe that there needs to be an intentional focus and ministry and an intentional care for dying churches and the people that are within those churches, because there are, uh, so many churches uh, in rural communities, this is not just a rural community problem, they're declining and dying, and uh, oftentimes the care for the people is not the primary focus. It's more on what's going to happen to the building, how does this fit within the organization, and uh, I think there's a real need and an opportunity for pastoral care. Uh, I was an interim pastor, but in a lot of ways, I've thought of myself as being a hospice pastor 
to a congregation that closed their doors in 2014. And and during that time also, and I mentioned this in the beginning of the chapter, I was able to compare that to another congregation within my old denomination that was also dying. And to see the difference between an intentional, careful hospice approach with one congregation versus another congregation that didn't have that kind of pastoral care really opened my eyes to uh, to an, the need to care for those people. And uh, I just really think that the church as a whole would benefit if we had that conversation. And it's not easy to have because we don't want to talk about it can feel uncomfortable to talk about, you know, dying churches and facing the prospect that a church may close. But I think it's better to finish well than to be in denial. So for listeners whose primary environment is not a rural church and who may not have had any experience with it, what what happens when a church dies? Uh, so at the very basic level, I would say that the church ceases to meet regularly, to perform the functions of a church, um, that that on a very basic level. There are other ancillary things to talk about, uh, the future of the property, the assets of the church. But the most important question is what's going to happen to the people that are there? Very, very yeah, it's rare. Like do, do new churches start up or do they get absorbed? Are there other so, churches they go to like yeah so there are different pathways uh one really exciting ministry is church replanting and i'm i'm not an expert on that so i wouldn't uh, speak too much to it but that is where a church that is near the end is intentionally uh replanted and whether that is they consolidate with another church whether the church closes down and reopens as a church plant as i understand it it can look different ways and that's those are essential ministries uh, i think but the 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 niche that i really wanted to speak to was an intentional focus on pastoral care for the dying church as it's in the last months and days of its life because, I mean, that's got to be, again, not to to bang the drum on that too hard, but rural church, like if you're in a small town, these are people, like if you are of any sort of like seniority at all, like you've been there for a couple decades, like you have a lot of history there. Like that's, you've bared each other's burdens. There have been births, there have been baptisms, there have been weddings, there have been deaths. Like that's a whole lot all that that's a lot of community investment and emotional attachment to be like okay this thing is now done even if it's replanted or a lot of the people all figure out something else together like that is uh a, a bit of a a lamentable situation and like so even if that's the right path forward like that's got to be quite a bit to go through absolutely what you just said in my chapter i think that's so important I think that if we're not careful, especially among leaders, that reality can get lost in bigger strategic pictures, in conversation about you know things like the assets and the building. The real experience of the people in the church can be lost, and that's also why I tried to draw a parallel uh, between you know, the experience and the end of the life of a local church versus hospice care 
for individuals. And uh, I know that uh, you know, most people that are pastors or leaders uh, are familiar, at, you know, walk through members of their church or family members, you know, through this process at the end of life. And I think there are a lot of parallels with the with the grieving and the lamenting, but also the, the celebrating of life. But, you know, uh, tackling questions at end of life, and I, and there were uh, some parallels there that I really wanted uh, to explore. Again, with the goal being that real intentional pastoral care uh, for the members in a church that's dying. Uh, Olivia, your chapter after Jason's, you covered a topic that we just recently covered on our most recent topic toss-up: uh, discipleship. Uh, that's something that we have here at the Substance previously, and something that. Uh, is very important to me, was very formative for me. And and I thought it was really interesting how you kind of talked about your personal experience with uh, that as a concept and kind of how you were introduced to it. And just talk, talk a little bit about your experience and then what you wanted to communicate to folks uh, in rural churches with your work here. Yeah, I think um, so. Growing up in church, um, I don't have a lot of memories of being a person who wasn't in church, you know, as a kid, it was just part of life. Um, and then growing into adulthood, um, you know, it's something that, um, by the grace of God, I've chosen for myself as well, um, to continue to be a part of. And so I'm really thankful for my upbringing and, and just having an understanding of God as a child. Um, I can see how important and formative those years were for me. Um, but when I look back on on the church that I grew up in, and I love them dearly, they cared for me so well. Um, the way that they discipled me is different than the way that I'm discipled in our church today, or even the way that our children are discipled um, in our churches today. So I think that now we have a bit of a more intentional approach to discipleship. So meaning we understand um what it means to disciple our kids, to disciple those around us, to ensure that we're being discipled ourselves. Um, we have a, we, and I say we, but I really mean me, you know, as I wrote this, I was writing this from a very personal experience, but also seeing just the landscape of um, a lot of our churches, especially in small towns, we may not have a really intentional mindset in terms of discipleship. It could just be, you know, we care for people because we're family and we love one another and we have a Bible study reserved for a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. Um, and then we'll do things here and there, but you know, it's, um, often either program based or just non-existent. And so what I would love to see in all churches, but particularly smaller churches in rural places is really this intentionality towards discipleship, learning the word of God for ourselves, particularly for women. Um, that's That was a, a big portion of my chapter as well that I wanted to ensure was written um, and talked about in the book because um, it's often lacking in small places as well. So um, I think having this uh, real understanding of what does it mean to make disciples? Um, how is that present in every day of our lives? Um, rather than just, you know, 
present in churches and, and in the four walls of our churches and programs and things. And so um, I feel like I had a unique perspective uh, being someone who grew up in rural West Virginia, who grew up in the church, um, who had a good experience growing up in, in church. You know, I'm thankful for that as well, that in my formative years of, of growing up among other believers, that they cared for me and they looked out for me. Um, but I also want to see how can we build on that and make that something um, somewhat of a legacy that we can leave our children, that they can leave their children and so on. And I would imagine, I mean, not to be overly like simplistic, but some of the the benefits that a few different uh, authors talked about, some of the unique benefits of being in a rural church environment, in my mind, I would imagine that would really kind of cater towards if folks caught a vision and they were willing and interested and committed, like for some like deeply rich discipleship relationships. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, in our church in particular um, of 200 or so, um, it, it can feel large to us sometimes, especially when we're all together. Sure. Um, And I think, I think no matter what, you know, size of the church, there's going to be an overwhelm. Um, in terms of caring for people, in terms of discipleship, in terms of evangelism, in terms of mission, like all of these things, no matter the size of your church, whether you're large, 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 or there's 30 people in your congregation, um, there's always going to be a bit of an overwhelm. And so I think... Um, especially for those of us in smaller places in rural places, um, seeing that that's okay, but also seeing that it's not an excuse to not do things, to not pursue um, deep discipleship, to not pursue a mission in our communities in a way that affects those around us, like physically those around us who we most likely know, (laughs) you know, we, most of us all know our neighbors. We either um, see them, you know, on a day-to-day basis. We grew up with them. We know them from somebody, from somebody, from somebody. Um, So it's hard, it's harder to ignore people. Um, And I think Will could probably speak to that as well. Um, Will doesn't like to ignore people. I'm more of a, like, if I see you at the grocery store and I know you, I'm more likely to just like turn the other way. If Will sees you at the grocery store, even if he doesn't know you, I feel like he's going to go talk to someone. So we might have I mean, how many in a, in a town that. that small, how, how many people do you really not know at all? I know everybody. I might not remember their name, but I, I've seen them somewhere. I love There's it. something well, we I mean, can talk about. That kind of goes into what you wrote, which is another like very favorite topic of mine that we've talked about here loads on the show. Just the idea of community, mm-hmm. right? Like, the, the church as the the true body and the like the family of God in this earth like trying to like live a kingdom life um, tell me a little bit about uh, your passion there what you wanted to communicate and really like um, in- encouragements to folks I mean primarily in rural churches but folks in local churches trying to make, their communities more Godward places uh, of encouragement for folks. What would you say? Yeah, uh, our churches looking uh, like heaven are extremely important, and so what that looks like is fostering biblical community within our churches and allowing it to be seen externally. Uh, I think I think post pandemic uh, something has happened in probably the world. Um, from our context in the United States, uh, there's definitely a polarization of culture here, and. Sure. People are beginning to look at the church increasingly um, either as favorable if, if they are religious or uh, hateful bigots if they're not. 
And I think if we're going to win people to Christ, they're going to have to see the benefits of heaven on earth. And so I, I really just spent the chapter um, unpacking what we call the Lord's Prayer um, as Jesus prays, um, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I, I believe that he's praying in the kingdom of the church. Uh, I believe the kingdom of Jesus is the church on earth. And so I think when he says, um, you know, give us this day our daily bread, um, there's an expectation that the church practically and in a very real sense provides and cares for one another. So in a, in a small town context, uh, in a rural context specifically, there's a lot of poverty. Um, our church gets tons of benevolence requests and, and you know, requests for financial assistance. And so we had to uh, really kind of come up with a, a good biblical strategy for how to deal with poverty um, and how to help people in our churches. And so I wrote a little bit about the church in Jerusalem in the first century and how uh, there was not a needy person among them. Well, what does that look like, right? And sure. um, and I think sometimes we forget that the the church is supposed to, in a in a very real way, care for one another. And what what tends to happen is when culture puts pressure on the church, uh, we just answer culture, and so that turns us into humanitarians rather than gospel preachers. And so we begin to just do good works, or we don't do them at all. Um, but our good works sometimes can tend to be externally focused instead of beckoning people, hey, join God's family and your needs will be met and you will be taken care of because this community looks like the kingdom of heaven. And another thing I particularly appreciated in your chapter was the delineation between you talked about making things look like heaven on earth, the differentiation between trying to force the broader culture as a whole into that image versus our religious assemblies, like our church communities mirroring heaven rather than trying to be some sort of culture warrior. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I'm a church planter, so um, I, I spend a lot of time with other church planters and um, I've gotten to the point where I kind of roll my eyes when church planters <laughs> are like, we're going to make our city, you know, great again, or, you know, that that's probably what Donald <laughs> Trump says, but you know, whatever that, that the, like the goal of a church plant is to make the city awesome. Right. It's like, no, that's not, that's not the great commission. That's not your purpose. And, um, and, and so, yeah, if Milton, West Virginia is a little bit better place to live because our church exists there, then praise God. But that's not our mission. That's missional drift if that's what we think we're supposed to be doing. Well, and that also kind of like, I don't know if that's that's pride or if that's kind of a mis, misunderstanding mm -hmm. or what, but the idea is that like, the church is supposed to be the city on the hill in salt and light. And if we're trying to – like, the, the idea isn't like we are trying to by force or by laws or by coercion like – make people more moral or more spiritual. Like that's, that's not something we can do. Like, I mean, I, I'm sure everybody's theology may be a little bit different, but Bible's pretty clear that like that, that is a, that is given to us that's as right. a gift. Yeah. That's not something that we have created in and of ourselves. And nor can we especially mm -hmm. like foist it on a secular culture. Right. And so it shouldn't be seen when someone moves to a city where there's a really cool church it should be seen when someone joins a godly local church. It should be seen that, you know, uh, people care for one another. They provide financially and practically for one another. They forgive one another. Racism goes away. F uh, orphans and kids are fostered and adopted and cared for. All of these practical needs are met because it looks like the kingdom of heaven. 
Um, thought I kind of open it generally, like we, we don't have a ton of time left, but are there any, uh, little nuggets or chapters in particular, any surprises or things that you thought was particularly that ministered to you guys as editors, as you were kind of shaping it, did anybody's piece? And I'm sure that not to neglect the others, but what, what stood out to you? What ministered to you guys as you were kind of shaping this as a resource for other rural churches? I think one that stood out to me was um, Chris Priestley's chapter called Hold Fast and Outlast. I forget what number he is. Um, But he, yeah, and it was eight or nine. So he wrote beautifully about the intersection of um, really culture, societal issues, and how the church, particularly a small town church, can respond um, or even should respond from a biblical perspective from a practical perspective, from just a caring perspective. Um, When he sent his submission in, I think we all read his and we were like, yes, this is, this is wonderful. Um, I I think that he just, he beautifully wrote to that with humility and grace, um, but also with a lot of biblical truth and um, just his writing and section and that portion of the book really, really ministered to me. And um, helped me, you know, I read it and it it was practically helpful for me as, um, a mom, as someone who works in ministry. So yeah, I really, I really loved that, that portion of the book. Will Jason, anything stand out to you? Yeah, I'll say that a uh, chapter and I probably was very drawn to it just because it was so connected to the topic that I was exploring was Jim Drake's chapter on revitalization was obviously a good fit in connection uh, with the the chapter on a hospice ministry for dying churches. And uh, just to kind of see him explore the subject of revitalization, he has experience in that area, both as a church revitalizer, but he was also somebody that was a catalyst and helped others, other churches through the revitalization process. It was important to me as I was considering how to minister to dying churches to make sure that what I was saying fit well within the framework of church revitalization, because, you know, that's what we want. And uh, so just to read and see his insights on that and compare that with what I was writing uh, was particularly meaningful for me. Well, I'm excited to check those out. Will, do you have anything? Uh, yeah, I already told you I love Christians, the first chapter and the introduction. Um, he did a great job. I just, I like the way he writes. Um, he should he also do that introduction. That was good. Yeah, he should write fiction also. Like, he should okay. just write a lot of different things. His writing style is really cool. And then um, I, I personally benefited, again, the timing was providential, I think, but I was preaching through. Uh, the book of Ephesians at New Heights Church. And as I was editing and reading Justin Honaker's chapter on spiritual warfare, and he used a lot uh, from Genesis, or not Genesis, uh, Ephesians chapter six and the armor of God. And so um, I, I actually was quoting his uh, chapter in my sermons before it was published. And so it was just practically helpful for me. Very nice. Well, excellent. Um, So one of the traditions we have here on the show is we do a little segment called Substance Shoutouts. I know we got three of you guys on here. uh, Is there anything that you guys want to uh, highlight for the audience? So Substance Shoutouts are things that you guys have been watching, reading, listening to, engaging with that's either been 
edifying or enjoyable. It doesn't have to be super spiritual, but what, uh, what has been enriching your life? All right, I'll go first. Um, Excellent. I think, uh, one thing that's, that is spiritual that's been encouraging lately is I'll give a shout out to Ronnie Martin and Donnie Griggs. They just released a book like weeks before we released ours called pastoring small towns. And we didn't know they were working on it. They didn't know we were working on one. And so the books are, are very similar. Um, ours is probably more pragmatic. Theirs really speaks to the heart uh, for pastors specifically. And and so Jason and Olivia not being in pastoral ministry um, maybe wouldn't benefit as much. But, but as I read it, I was encouraged. Um, they were gracious enough to send me an early copy and I read it and, and I was just really impacted, um, encouraged to not give up which um, I think when we were working on this book, I think they distracted Jason and Olivia distracted me to the point that I thought about <laughs> giving up on ministry a couple of times, but, um, but it was just super encouraging. And I thought it was providential and funny that, uh, that we were releasing books, you know, for similar audiences at the same time. And, what, uh, what's uh, the name of that again? Pastoring small towns. Is that the Ronnie Martin who's the musician and on the happy rant or is that a different Ronnie Martin? That's the same guy. Okay. Yeah. Where's he out of? Uh, he's in, uh, is it called Athens, Athens, Ohio? Okay. His no, church I, is, uh... his church is called, uh, substance. Oh uh, yes, it is. I, I, yeah. I saw that <laughs> we haven't, I haven't, I mean, I've talked to him online. I, uh, I was thinking about reaching out to have him, uh, for the music. I really appreciated his last couple of projects. Yeah, you should. And Donnie's in uh, Moorhead, North Carolina over okay. on the coast. Uh, Olivia, you got a shout out or shout yeah, out. So, I, um, this year have told myself I need to start reading more fiction. Jason has actually encouraged me to do this because he's a big fiction reader. Um, so I have been reading this series of books called the Thursday murder club. I don't know if anyone's familiar. Um, but it has brought me so much joy. That sounds deeply non-Christian and not (laughs) joyful. Okay. Well, Um, well, they're really funny. So the Thursday murder club is these four elderly friends who they live in the same, like, um, old folks home as we would say here in West Virginia. Um, but it's like, it's, it's really funny. So it's not like a murder mystery. It's, it's, it's mystery, you know, it keeps you on your toes, but, um, it's just a really good story. The author is a great writer. Um, I've read three of his books this year already, and I'm waiting for oh, the wow. fourth one to come out. Yeah, they're that good. I've like flown through them. Um, they're easy to get from the library. Highly recommend if you like a good, fun, easy fiction read. I'm not a heavy book reader. I don't like to watch heavy movies. I leave that to my husband who will watch them after I go to bed. But this book about murder, surprisingly, was really funny. Sounds like fun. <laughs> Uh, Jason, anything you'd like to shout out? Reading, watching, listening to what? No, I, what's been bringing you joy or encouraging you? Yeah, lately? absolutely. So I had this great answer based upon how much I love fiction and recommend it to my friends. Uh, but since Olivia went that direction, um, I'll uh, I'll go a little bit of a different direction. So I kind of have eclectic taste. Like I said, I'm very interested in fiction. It's actually what I hope to write next. And, uh, but that's, uh, still to be determined, but I've also really been into poetry lately. So I've been reading a lot of poetry and, uh, trying to write a little bit of poetry, uh, for myself. And, uh, it's really been stretching and stretching my, you know, what I think are my abilities, but also, uh, 
each it seems to minister to me and kind of edify me in a different way than maybe even nonfiction or, or, or fiction. So I've been kind of searching out. I've been reading some of the classic poems, but I've also been kind of searching out authors or people that I'm familiar with to see if they had written any poetry. So one example, and, and I'm working my way through, and it may be above my pay grade, but uh, Eugene Peterson uh, released a book of poetry several years ago. So I've been uh, working through that and uh, really just kind of taking in poetry. Very nice. I've heard a number of people share about that. Nobody's said, I, I don't know if I give off that vibe, like, hey, Philip, you need to read this. But I, I've seen a number of people talk about that lately. And it does, if somebody's in the mood or of the persuasion, that, that seems like a very great resource. Excellent. Well, I uh, appreciate your guys uh, all joining us tonight. Uh, it's sometimes interesting when you have multiple people, but uh, it was nice that we were able to have a nice, uh, uh, nobody's talking over each other too much here. <laughs> all right, uh, folks, we'll, we can start with, I got on my screen, I got Will, Olivia, Jason. Where would you like us to send folks? Do you guys um, have your own feeds, just rural church voices? Where can folks follow you guys if they're interested in checking out your work and finding more? Well, they can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Church Rural, and um, we can uh, connect with you guys there and lots of links on those pages for you to find the books, order them as well. Um, easiest place is probably go to Amazon, find them there, and you can find them, uh, find the books available for purchase and more information about what we do on our website at ruralchurchvoices.com. Appreciate you guys joining us uh, tonight and uh, we'll uh, we'll catch you guys later. All right, everybody. So that was Olivia Mead, Will Basham, and Jason Cook of the Rural Church Voices Network um, on their book Church Out Here, Insights from Small Town Churches. Yeah, I really appreciated their passion for the church. Um, I'm excited uh, to have you guys check this out. So yeah, check the links in the show notes to pick up church out here and I'll also have links for Olivia and Jason and Will's previous books uh, in the line as well. It's good stuff. It's good. Um, I'm not in a rural context. I was edified. So whether you're in a rural church, large church, something in between um, it's really good content about how to live healthfully in a church, whether you are a, a pastor or you are, just a member seeking to be active and love your fellow congregants. Um, this is really good stuff. So I'll throw the links in the show notes there. So yeah, I guess I'm doing the whole uh, plug section at the end here solo. So follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We are at the substance pod on the social medias. Thank you to Trevor Aiken and Vincent Edwards for our intro music Thank you to Anna Marinello and Vincent Edwards for our art. And thank you to Dave Hallahan for our editing. You can reach us at thesubstancepod at gmail.com with any feedback, uh, future guest suggestions, and if you want to get books you want us to talk about, movies you want us to uh, consider adding to our substantive cinema list, you can do that at thesubstancepod.com or leave us a voicemail. Our number is 913 913- 703-3883. Or if you want to send us a clearer, uh, you can just send a voice note to the email address there. 
Um, if the show is something you enjoy, you care about, you want to support, two ways to do that. Um, join us in the show notes. You can sign up at 5 or $10 a month on the Anchor link. And I guess now that that's the Spotify for Podcasters link, you can do that at 5 or $10 a month, hopefully soon here. Promise you, we are working on some actual ideas and incentives there. But for now, everything is free. There's not going to be anything behind a paywall. But if the substance is something that brings you benefit um, and regular support is something you're able to do, we uh, invite you to join there. Consider that. Or if uh, you want to send us a couple bucks, but monthly support is not your thing, you can do that on Cash App at dollar sign the substance pod and i will say i just sent out both trevor and vincent's uh thank you gift so anybody who sent us some cash for that i appreciate that and i will uh, send that out as well and still feel free dave like i said is editing the show if you have any messages or thank yous or things like that you want to send for Trevor and Vincent, feel, still feel free to send those in and we'll maybe make a compilation and in an episode or two, um, throw any of those extra up if you guys would like. So thanks for joining us. Hope that was enjoyable. Hope you all were encouraged and we'll see you next time on The Substance. Oh wait, how do I end the show on my own? <laughs>